Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and it's so good to be here with you sort of uh, broadcasting from Metro Melbourne where last weekend with the news of the extension of Stage 4 lockdown, we collectively took a deep breath, dug deep and found the necessary small mercies to help us plough onto a brighter hopefully brighter future. Really grateful, though, to live in a place where science and sense prevails. It's not easy, but hang in there, friends. We're all in this together alone, alone together. Before I start, though, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm broadcasting today on the lands of the original storytellers of this place, the Wawandari people of the Kulin Nation, here where their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging and those of all other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. On today's show, in a recent essay, Award Rate, Laura Elizabeth Woollett, the critically acclaimed author of Love of a Bad Man and Beautiful Revolutionary, explores the all-too-relatable duality of being a working artist in Australia while having to somehow work a casual job to pay the bills. Uh, It's certainly something that's coming up more and more now that people actually have access to JobKeeper, which may be uh, a stable income for many when they have not had a stable income. Uh, In Laura's case, it was her being nominated for Australia's Richest Literary Award while working as a mystery shopper. Laura joins me later in the hour. But soon, following on from Preservation, a dark historical crime drawn from the real-life story of the wreck of the Sydney Cove, is the Burning Island. This time, The story is told by Elizabeth Grayling, the daughter of the now-disgressed Lieutenant Joshua Grayling, whose extreme alcohol abuse has left him blind. When Srinivas, now middle-aged and successful, begs for her father's help to avenge old wrongs, Elizabeth finds herself dragged into a sea voyage that will be overshadowed by the past and the still all-too-present legacy of the Tasman- of Tasmanian colonialism and the frontier wars. Author Jock Sarong joins me soon to talk about writing richly researched historical crime and the cultural consultation that went into fictionalising a real-life hero, uh, a resistance fighter of the Palawa people, uh, Taran Norera, and I'm really looking forward to talking to him about all of that Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. It should have been clear Srinivas was proposing a voyage that was futile and dangerous. There was no proof that this man from long ago was responsible for the fate of the Haura, even if the feverish notion proved accurate. There was no logical way in which my helpless father was going to bring him to account. Sending me with him was no further use and would only endanger me as well. 
It's more than 30 years after Lieutenant Joshua Grayling went to investigate the wreck of the Sydney Cove. Now the murderous events surrounding that ill-fated vessel will drag him off to sea once more. But this time it's his daughter Elizabeth who must be the protagonist of a dangerous mission, propping up her disgraced father whose extreme alcohol abuse has left him blind. Soon the pair are joined by a small crew aboard the Moonbird, setting sail for a sea voyage that will be overshadowed by past wrongs and the still all too present legacy of Tasmanian colonialism and the frontier wars. This is all part of The Burning Island, uh, the latest book by author Jock Sarong and following on from his previous book, Preservation. And Jock Sarong joins me now to talk about creating this complex historical crime and all that went into it. Jock Sarong, welcome to Backstory. Okay, Mel, thank you for that lovely intro. Well, look, uh, I was pretty excited to have uh, a chance to read this book because I did get to talk to you about preservation and it was still really quite vivid in my mind. But perhaps uh, I have given a little bit of a taster of what this book was about, but I'm really intrigued as to uh, why you decided to sort of follow on uh, from the events in the way that you have. So could you maybe set the scene a little bit for people about this new kind of uh, following on? from preservation yeah yeah well it's um it is a sequel i guess to preservation but equally i hope it's a book that stands alone um what i'm interested in more broadly is the Furneaux islands which is this group of islands in the east side of bass strait and the way that they influenced a lot of victorian history and a lot of tasmanian history in this handful of years kind of just after 1800 um so I wanted to tell a separate story. Preservation is about a true shipwreck, and I followed the survivors of that shipwreck as they walked up into New South Wales. So the way that book was structured kind of left the islands behind, and this time around I wanted to go back to those islands um, and talk about them and their history in detail because um, they're a very, very beautiful place physically, but equally they have a very dark past, and um, there are elements of this novel that cleave very, very closely to that history. Um, in particular, the fact that they were a gathering point for Tasmanian Aboriginal women who formed partnerships with sealers in the early 1800s. And then you had um, missionaries led by George Augustus Robinson coming in and trying to round those women up. Um, so, I, I, yes, there there is the, I guess, seagoing adventure aspect of the novel but equally I really wanted to talk about that bit of history and and how important it is. Absolutely and you very much do I mean I think this is this is such a you know all of your books are complex in many ways and certainly you've you've let the sort of uh, historical tides um buffet this this story around um, as appropriately it should. Uh, there is a, a really quite extraordinary character that also um, uh, comes into this story at a crucial point, and I won't give away too much of how that happens, but uh, Tarana Herrera, who's a... Um, Tomajin, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, um, a Tomajin resistance fighter, a Palawa woman who actually was 
a uh, you know part of the frontier wars in Tasmania really took up arms and led a group of people in resistance against the colonisers. Uh, she appears in this story as a fictionalised character and I did want to talk about creating this because this is an area that obviously we rightly have to discuss and think very carefully about before entering into, which is representations of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, both historical and present, uh, in works uh, that... that represent them in some way. Could you discuss how you created this character? Yeah, um, so Tarnora, and again I'm I'm a little bit careful with the pronunciations too, Um, Tarnora was uh, a factual figure as you say. What fascinated me about her, and and she was somebody I stumbled across in researching other aspects of this story, what fascinated me about her was that she inverts everything that people assume about Aboriginal resistance in that she had been taken into settlers' homes and she had been taught to use firearms basically for domestic purposes. Um, She had then taught other Aboriginal people to use those weapons and those weapons ultimately were turned on the settlers and led by this ferocious woman. And I love the idea of her as a resistance fighter. Um, There's surprisingly little written and known about her. She died by probably about 30 years of age. Um, And I suppose the reason that I've included her in the novel was to make that point that there were people involved amongst the Palawa in this period who really are um, surprising and complex figures who... Um, challenge the way we we think we understand colonial history. Um, To your wider question about telling um, stories of settlement and and of um, frontier conflict, I think there's a very delicate balance to strike because on the one hand, you can't take up and assume responsibility for Aboriginal stories as a white person. Um, You should never do it. And... um, all of us as writers have to make as much room as possible for Aboriginal people to take ownership of their own stories. But the flip side of that too is that I think as a writer you can um, cheaply excuse yourself from telling stories of colonialism by saying, well, it's not my place, it's all too hard. And um, I, I think surely the conversations that we need to have about our history need to come um, from all of us and that means that sometimes you have to take on stories that are difficult to tell and you have to do the hard work around consulting and researching and making sure that you're being respectful. And um, it's not an easy line to walk, but um, increasingly I think writers and filmmakers are taking it on and, and doing it better. Yeah, and I think being prepared to um, to own if you've gotten something wrong to to kind of learn from it and to make sure that people are discussing these kinds of things. I did, uh, I always look at the acknowledgements of, of books. I, I particularly looked at this one because, um, you know, of the necessary issues of sensitivity surrounding doing this type of writing, um, particularly this is the, the sort of thing that we should have been doing all along, um, but only now is really being considered. And I do note that you did cons- consultation work, but again, that doesn't mean that it ends there. These conversations need to to keep happening and to evolve and become deeper and more and richer as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and one of the, the really pleasant surprises in um, the process of publishing the book has been that um, when it went off to be recorded as audio, um, often that happens in a hurry, and um, I had a call from the studio saying, look, we're in here, um, we've, we've done this very complex lockdown uh, equation where we've got people together and they're all linked up and we've got an actress and we've got a producer and um, all of us have stopped dead because we're not sure how to pronounce these words. Um, you've got 24 hours, go out and find correct pronunciations for us and bring them back to us because we're not going to record this thing unless we know we're, we're saying things right. Which is, um, you know, it was a bit of a panic at the time, but it's really reassuring to hear that people in the process of producing the book um, have taken so much care to get it right. And, and as you say, even then, there will be mistakes and there will be controversies, but um, there's a lot of goodwill around doing it properly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as, as no, people are not necessarily going to get things right. It's, this is the nature of, of actually engaging with, uh, you know, with our deep past wrongs is understanding that there's a long way still to go. I feel as though this book really does have, um, you know, it has the same kind of flavour and air that you created in preservation. And I'm really interested in how you do the sort of uh, fastidious sort of historical research to create these characters and then leap from that into the fictionalising space um, because it does very much have that kind of power and energy of a, a crime novel. It's got a, a kind of narrative drive to it. Uh, quite a lot of it is spent on board the vessel with just a very small cast of characters. Uh, so talk to me a little bit about that because you do really invest quite a lot in your character development, I feel. Yeah, I guess the first thing to say about that is that the boat was a handy staging device and it probably didn't occur to me until I'd started writing it, but it meant that you had a small confined stage and a set of characters on it and um, a lot of the thinking and writing revolved around just moving these people around this very, very small space and at any given time if I was talking about one person like Eliza or Argyle, I, I had to be thinking about, okay, where is everyone else on the boat at the moment? Because they're only ever going to be 10 feet away. So um, that made for interesting um, logistics, I suppose, in the writing. Um, on the research, it's fascinating that, um, firstly, you know you need to figure out a certain number of things. You need to know what sorts of personal domestic objects did people have around them, how did they dress, what was the boat like, um, what sorts of, of words did people use, all of those obvious historical things. But then if you wear that stuff too heavily in the writing, it can look a bit self-conscious. Um, and sometimes um, my editor, Mandy Brett, would use the note, you know, this looks researchy. And you kind of, once you look at it, you know you've transgressed. Um, but the other funny thing about that is that often when you go looking for one thing, you go down a rabbit hole and you find something else entirely. And instead of the um, the, the story driving the research, the research starts to drive the story a little bit. Um, there's an example in there of, I don't know how I came across it, but there's a fungus that affects rye crops called St. Anthony's Fire. And I just thought it was such a bizarre little back road that I immediately started thinking of a way that it could come into the story rather than the story ever having needed it. 
If you have just joined me, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Jock Sarong about his latest book, The Burning Island, which follows on from his historical crime preservation. I am calling it a crime. Uh, I think that this is quite a loose category in many ways, and certainly you have uh, been nominated for and won awards that are um, crime awards. But I think there's something about the air, the noir kind of air, that still um, feels like it's a part of... Uh, of this this type of um, of writing, but also that there is literally kind of uh, this idea of investigating a crime that's happened that's sort of at the heart of it. Do you feel like that's a fair kind of uh, category to place you in or do you sort of feel a little uncomfortable about these kinds of categories? <laughs> I think it's a fascinating question um, because last year I, I was lucky enough to go to America with some other writers and the thing to, to this big, Crime Writers Convention in Dallas, and the thing that was very, very evident was that American readers and writers have a very firm notion of genre and what a crime book is, and, and indeed physically how it looks in terms of cover design. Um, here, I think that we are pushing the boundaries increasingly of what crime is, and I think that's a really positive development. Um, when I wrote Java Ridge, it's it's about the way that the government likes to deceive us about asylum seekers. And it, it's full of crimes, but nobody ever discussed that book in terms of it being crime fiction. Um, preservation has most often been discussed as historical fiction, but you're right, I think it has crime elements to it and probably the same um, here with The Burning Island. So I don't know where the boundary lines are, but I'm fascinated by the, the ambiguity of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you're definitely pushing them. But I feel very strongly that that one of the, the main kind of aspects of crime, at least the, the kind of thing that I gravitate towards, is that uh, true crime has the crime and then the real crime. And, of course, in this book it is uh, colonialism itself. It's the genuine real crime underneath this entire story. I mean, even if you read old Wilkie Collins books, there's that element where the crime is a bit of a red herring um, and then there's the real sort of crime underneath it. Do you kind of feel like that might uh, might fit a little bit into where you're coming from with your books? Yes, exactly, exactly. And one of the things that I thought about in preservation with creating Mr Fig as a villain was the notion that, um, yes, he is immediately and obviously a nasty character, but equally he's, he's something of a, a metaphor, I suppose, for wider evils. And um, the same thing continues, um, without giving too much away, the same thing continues into the Burning Island, that um, you can look at the villains as individuals, or as you say, you can you can look at the wider evil of a system that is um, remorselessly relocating Aboriginal people and taking them out of their traditional lands and um, treating them Abjectly, and um, the question of those relationships with the sealers is a vexed one. You know, there are, there are people who say that these were very, very productive unions, and that um, Aboriginal women escaped slaughter on the Tasmanian mainland by being with the sealers. Equally, there's pretty firm evidence of some savagery among the sealers. So, um, how do you process that in terms of good people and bad people, and? Um, positive history and, and a history of genocide. They're very, very vexed issues and I think that's all the more reason that we should be um, writing and talking about them more. 
and these are actually issues that the characters in the book kind of do discuss, in fact, quite literally. So so it is worth sort of delving into those sections as well. I want to talk about your creation of those of the particular characters that we find ourselves with because they are an interesting band of characters. Um, I'm sort of intrigued by your choices with, with them um, and how you came to sort of hit on that sort of small band. Mm. I, um, it's funny, I think at the very, very start you you start with a set of structural elements. So I knew I wanted a voyage, I needed a boat, and there needed to be people on the boat. When you get beyond those basics, I guess one of the early jobs is to start differentiating the people on the boat. So to my mind, there had to be somebody crewing it, so there's two convicts. There needed to be a skipper. There needed to be um, a stranger who is a guest on board, and there needed to be Eliza and her father. And each of those people, um, as the drafts progressed, they need to become more and more different to each other so that they bounce well uh, against each other. And, you know, that really leads to fun when you start to think, oh, hang on, I've got this figured out, that the convicts can be separated twins. Um, Mr Argyle, the master, can turn up on day one wearing a dress and um, Dr Gideon can start doing experiments below decks with um, some poor and long-suffering animals. So... um, Bringing them wider and wider apart from each other really helps you to develop the drama of the story and um, there's a lot of fun in doing that. It's one of the really pleasurable processes, I think, in in putting a novel together. Yeah, you really don't. And none of them are character sketches. They've all got these kind of rich um, histories that you touch upon that really almost beg a a separate book to to explain them. Uh, And there's enough in here in terms of like the, the real visceral descriptions of the sea creatures that are being subjected to um, terrible treatment at the hands of Dr Gideon in, in my terms. I was, I was struggling with that a little bit. Beautifully described. Uh, you, I feel as though you spent quite a long time sort of falling in love with these, with these creatures. Uh, it very much was a, a big kind of part of the book. Yeah, I, um, I'm fascinated by sea creatures and I will take any flimsy excuse to write about them. Here, um, having Dr Gideon experimenting on them also was a character study because there is this very interesting tradition at that point in history, in the middle of the 19th century, where the so-called naturalists were not what we would think of formally as marine scientists. They were not especially um, objective or scholarly. A lot of it, and Joseph Banks is an example of this, a lot of it was about adventure on the high seas and fame um, and indeed profit. And um, a lot of the early naturalists were men who were looking to make a name for themselves rather than scientists who wanted to get to the bottom of um, of concepts. So I, Gideon, I guess, represents that. I did wonder if he was a Banksian character, actually. I, I meant to ask you that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, like all of us, I suppose, I had encountered the name Joseph Banks along the way in, in school history. And I think I had imagined him as whiskery and old. But in fact, Banks was the heir to an enormous fortune. And the work that he did with James Cook, he really only did very early in his life. Um, and he did it for the kicks. He was um, he was a celebrity. And by the middle of his life, he had pulled away from travelling and studying natural creatures um, entirely and and really was more of a domestic celebrity in the UK. 
Um, so I guess he illustrates the point about Dr. Dr. Gideon, you know, that um, these people were, um, yeah, adventurers. And also the the darkest side of Banks, obviously, is his, his observation of the first uh, uh, Australian Aboriginal people that they encounter um, and then... Um, those observations are later used to justify uh, saying that there were no people who actually owned or, you know, had a stake in the land here or sovereignty over land. Um, so it's actually quite a dark role that he ultimately plays in Australia's colonial history. Yes, and, and that some of the great collective wrongs really are an accumulation of bland and superficially inoffensive observations by people like Banks. You, you add them together and all of a sudden they create a, a dehumanising picture um, and, and yes, they, they form a foundation for um, greater wrongs. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, there's so much more I could talk about in this book, uh, particularly the writing and how you've put it all together. But uh, I'm afraid uh, I'm going to have to leave our conversation there. Jock Sarong, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Mel, it's a great pleasure. Thanks heaps. Thank you. That was, of course, author Jock Sarong talking about his latest book, The Burning Island, which is out now through text. Uh, Coming up next, critically acclaimed author Laura Elizabeth Woolett discusses her essay, Award Rate, and what it's like to be nominated for Australia's richest literary award while still having to do casual work to pay the bills. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I've never had a full-time job. I used to tell myself this was a lifestyle choice, that the flexibility was worth my was worth the insecurity, that nine to five, five days a week would kill my creativity. Truthfully, I've never had an offer. Interviewing for full-time positions, data entry, marketing assistant, medical receptionist, I was asked about my creative writing degree. I was asked about career aspirations. To live and write was my answer. Not a good answer. That's an excerpt from Laura Elizabeth Woolett's Sydney Review of Books essay, Award Rate. In it, Laura, the critically acclaimed author of Love of a Bad Man and Beautiful Revolutionary, explores the all-too-relatable duality of being a working artist in Australia while having to work another casual job to pay the bills. In her case, of being nominated for Australia's richest literary award while working as a mystery shopper. Laura Elizabeth Willett joins me now to discuss her essay. Laura, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Uh, reading this actually, um, we, I mean, it's a beautifully written piece, I have to say. You have this wonderful spare way of sort of bringing things to life in these short vignettes. So thank you for that. But also for the highly kind of relatable uh, things that you discuss. Can you talk about why you decided to write this essay? I mean, it was on my mind for a long time, I think, uh, after the ceremony because it was such a weird experience having um, this completely, like, ridiculous, glamorous ceremony that I had to attend and that I was extremely nervous about and um, in the running for a huge amount of money that would have changed my life. And then the next day knowing I was rusted to work a 10-hour shift and um, thinking, like, oh, if I do win, do I still show up to my shift? 
so it's um when I didn't win it was kind of like yeah okay life continues as normal and I was kind of okay with that but it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster I guess and I have always found awards to be um strange you know because they are really as writers in Australia one of our biggest chances of actually getting well compensated for the work that we're doing but it is really such a lottery a lot of the time. It kind of I mean it's not quite the Hunger Games but it does have that feeling about it doesn't it where it's like there can only be one and everyone else I I mean you describe that in a way that doesn't sound at all embittered it just is matter of fact that actually you could have won a life-changing amount of money that would have allowed you to essentially just write, uh, which is essentially what it is that you do for a job uh, for your career, I guess. Um, but you're unable to do that because obviously it's not something you can live off otherwise. Uh, and yet, so so within, you know, that coin toss of who gets chosen, uh, you come home with, you know, a, a small sort of sum of money that you can then use for something nice, but certainly not that life-changing amount only one can get it. It's it's such a strange phenomenon. Yeah, it really is. And especially when you're talking about $80,000, um, when you're working a job where you get about $30,000 a year, it's, it's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a really, the, the way you've kind of uh, written this essay, I think does, um, it does reflect uh, or cause the audience to reflect on these things without, you know, really offering a sort of um, more sort of I guess thorough didactic examination. You're really laying it out in this beautifully woven uh, piece that sets out these things uh, and and offers a kind of empathetic look into the life of an artist uh, as it's lived. You're not overstating or understating uh, how things affect you. I, I was particularly engaged by your description of being a mystery shopper. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a very strange job, which um, I got the job way back in 2014, just applying through Gumtree and completely forgot about the application and then got this call and was like, what are you talking about? Um, But it's not what people think where you actually like go into shops and pretend to be a customer and shop. Um, It's actually calling a lot of utilities companies, calling a lot of councils and stuff. And um, we do emails as well. And posing as a real person and asking, you know, how do I register my cat or how do I pay my rates? Um, How do I find out if I'm eligible for a hardship program? Just stuff like that and kind of trying to be as plausible as possible while not giving any identifying details, which can be pretty hard sometimes. Um, But yeah, it's a a kind of a good job for a writer because it, it does uh, involves some creativity and I do write little descriptions of my interactions with everyone. Um, <laughs> you, you have one of, one of them here was, uh, um, you know, when you describe exactly uh, what it is that you do for a job and then you're talking about your supervisor and you say to them, why wouldn't I just check their website? I asked Dane, my training buddy, after bringing up a scenario requesting a library opening hours, because we hired you off Dumtree, he smirks, or your internet's down. You can say that if they ask. They won't, though. It's their job to be nice, no matter how dumb you sound. And then a few beats later, you say, essentially, it's the first thing that they ask. <laughs> so um, it's yeah. really, you've obviously, and you show, I mean, there, there is this real tension in the piece about the fact that 
it is obviously what you're describing a really difficult juggling act to live on uh, what you describe as incredibly low rate um, paying jobs for the large part, although this recent job pays a bit more, you don't say what, uh, but enough obviously to live on, uh, while at the same time still finding some you know, some things that really support your writing. I think you you say here that it's taught you a lot about dialogue. Can you discuss that tension in the piece? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot because I think, um, I mean, sitting at the desk, writing, trying to come up with words on the page, when you're not feeling it, it's not always the best place to be. And sometimes having other things going in your on in your life can help and can, like, enrich your writing. Um but then at the same time, there's this kind of um, feeling like, but I shouldn't have to be here as much as I am. And I, you know, if I'm trying to find the positives in this situation, am I kind of like gilding the bars of my cage, you know, because I do at the same time want the freedom of being able to have a good amount of time to write. But I think um, at the same time, you know, day jobs can enhance what we're doing and, um, I think the lifestyle of writing every day might not actually be suited to everyone and that's okay, but I think there should be um, ways to do two things at once and not have that constant um, tension and feeling like you're going to burn out. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Laura Elizabeth Woollett about her essay award rate in the Sydney Review of Books. Uh, you you do kind of highlight this uh, this kind of weirdness of a lot of the people uh, on staff at, uh, at this um, mystery shopping call centre being artists and writers and other creative people who, who need to make a living. Uh, and, you know, there's one description or one moment when uh, you're kind of uh, testing a multinational automaker and you've been asked to say that you want to test drive a, a hatchback. Um, and one of the, the other call centre workers says, but why are we replacing our 2012 hatchback if we like it and it still works? Uh, you're upgrading it, but why? Chantelle, looking in on the training session, tells the project manager she'll have to explain the concept of upgrading to us left-wing hippies. Falteringly, she does. Afterwards, the light installation artist shakes her head and repeats, but Why? I just thought this was perfectly telling because I guess, you know, here's this situation where there's all these people who are quite educated and quite, um, you know, quite engaged in their general professions but would never earn enough money to even consider something like that and regardless of whether or not that's a, a kind of wasteful example. Was that kind of your intention to sort of build up this this sense of what it is to to be bridging these two worlds? Yeah, it, it, I, I remember that meeting well, and I think um, to all of us there, like the concept of even buying a 2012 hatchback is like, oh, okay. Like, um, so yeah, upgrading is a very, very um, not even in our world, and I, I liked having that tension. And I think in this in the job that I do, you know, you have to pretend to be a completely different person, and to come up with this life that isn't your own sometimes, and try to wrap your head around it. Before I, I mean, we're really fast running out of time, which is such a pity because I really think that this is a conversation that could go on for ages because there's a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to artists earning 
anything. It does seem like such a cliche, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that think we've all heard the struggling artist story, et cetera, et cetera. But why should it be so when these are actually, when cultural artifacts that we create are worth um, quite literally so much to our society? I don't know that any of us would be getting through this incredibly difficult time without uh, television shows or film or without video games or without books, so many books. How is it that we haven't valued them before? And do you think that now that things like JobKeeper have been offered, offering some stability to people, that it will be really hard to go back? Yeah, I think it definitely will will be because um, speaking from personal experience, like I, I have been getting JobKeeper and it's basically equal to what I would be getting if I was working full-time hours. As a casual, I don't always have access to full-time hours. So um, that's probably going to be ending for me in late September because I don't think our company qualifies again. Um, and yet, you know, most of us are still only on about 12 hours of work a week because that's what's available at the moment. So we're just going to have to make do with that. And thankfully, because I do have art stuff going on and I did succeed in getting some funding Um I'll be okay, but I know like a lot of other people will not be. Yeah, I think I I was left thinking after reading this that, you know, now that we've been living through this period of time when uh, quick and dramatic change has been necessary, it's really worth rethinking how the whole arts funding system works, you know, rather than having these big ticket awards that really help just one or two extremely, um, you know, like well-heeled writers deserving those things, no doubt, but so do many. Um, maybe a, a kind of a program where there are more uh, available uh, artist award types of things that involve, that are more like JobKeeper, I guess, that are just available for living expenses. Uh, I think that these kinds of things are really uh you know, greatly needed in the discussion about how we make sure we support this incredibly important part of everyone's lives. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely a time to be rethinking how it all works. Yeah, well, look, Laura, I'm um, I'm sorry to hear about your situation with JobKeeper and I certainly hope that obviously uh, you have enough to continue on with the incredible work that you do. I know you've got a book coming out very soon. Um, oh, sorry, mid-next year, The Newcomer. Is that right? Yeah, that, that, that'll be out in July next year. Yeah, well, I'm really very much looking forward to that. Please stay safe and... Uh, I hope things definitely start to look up for all of us artists out there. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.